Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I have my PhD in history, but I'm an expert in whooping it up. Woohoo! White gloves and dirty documents. That's how this historian gets down. I am JMZ. I'm a doctor, and my prescription is more shade. Hello, welcome back to Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. Jane Mill, the millionaires. Max Beer. In this episode, we discuss the relationship between civil rights histories, integration, and segregation, and how that plays out in 1960s, 1970s, and reality television programming with our guest, Kate Flock. As we relate this conversation to recent developments on the Bravo Network since the uprisings in the wake of the Breonna Taylor and George Floyd murders in 2020, we mentioned the Bravo firings a few times. For context, the network made a show of cleaning house to remove cast members on the Vanderpump Rules series, including Kristen Dowdy, Stassi Schroeder, Max Boyens, and Brett Caprioni, over past racist actions. While Jax Taylor and Brittany Cartwright weren't immediately fired with those previously mentioned, Viewers clamored for their firings, both over racist actions and for ongoing homophobia, including selecting a homophobic pastor for their wedding ceremony. Ultimately, Taylor and Cartwright parted ways with the network. Then, Bravo proceeded to offer a series of haphazard anti-racist allyship episodes and attempted to integrate the various Real Housewives franchises with adding women of color. This resulted in the canceling of The Real Housewives of Dallas, the suspension of The Real Housewives of New York, a long delay before relaunching The Real Housewives of Orange County, and a floundering Southern charm. Kate's going to contextualize both these current events and these historical dynamics, as well as show us how similar the modern Real Housewives formula is to the An American Family reality television show from 1973. Kate Flock received her Ph.D. in history from the University of California, San Diego in 2018. Currently, she is a lecturer at California State University, Long Beach, and is revising a book manuscript based off her dissertation titled Living Room Liberalism, Politics, Television, and Social Change, 1960-1980. So with that, welcome Kate Flock. Thank you for having me. Would you like to share your Real Housewives tagline to get started? I would. I might study television, but I write my own script. 
Ooh. <laughs> good one. <laughs> That's a good one. Thanks. So I actually got to present with you on, uh, what is it, WAWH, the Women West, Western Association of Women Historians. That's what the acronym stands for. In 2016. So I met you years ago, and I absolutely loved your work on that panel. It was very exciting. I actually think about you every time that All in the Family comes up as a television show <laughs> to talk about uh, when I'm in the 1970s. And so I wondered if you could tell us about your academic journey and how things have come to be. Sure. Um, well, when I presented next to you at that conference, I was pregnant at the time. And so I have since had the baby since 2016. And, um, congratulations. The, thank you. Um, after that, I finished, yeah. <laughs> I, um, finished writing my dissertation after the baby and defended in December, 2018. And at the time I was living in Colorado Springs because my husband, who's also a historian, had a postdoc at Colorado college, um, but he got a tenure track job at California State University, Long Beach. Congratulations. That's, a, yes. that's another big thing yes. to celebrate. <laughs> and um, so I was hired as a lecturer there and I started, so we moved back to Southern California. We now live in Long Beach and I have been teaching as a lecturer since the fall uh, semester 2019. So I'm in, finishing my second year. I absolutely, absolutely love working there. Um, but yeah, so that's been my journey since we last presented together. That's really exciting. That's lots of good stuff. Have you always been interested in TV? How did your reality TV interest develop? I've always been interested in television at, on, a per, on a personal level. I would consider myself a TV kid. When I was younger, I would spend the night at my grandmother's house because we did not have cable when I was a kid at my mom and dad's house. And so I loved going there because she had cable and I'd spend time with her. And um, on the weekends, I would watch all of my Nickelodeon shows until Nick at Night came on. And she would kick my grandfather, who had usually fallen asleep on the couch at that point, kick him out. Of off the couch, he would go to bed, and we would watch all of the old TV shows together and stay up really late and talk. Um, and uh, same with my dad. I remember watching old television shows with him when I was younger as well. But academically, I became interested in television when I started my master's program at the University of Akron. Um, oddly enough, I started off, I wanted to be an early modern U.S. historian, and I was initially interested in lynching photography, and my interest in lynching photography actually transitioned into an interest in television because I was interested in the power of the photographer and what it meant to use photography in a way to take power away from um, Black people, particularly in the South. Now, as I became interested in that topic, I then sort of um, followed that interest to studying the um, murder and lynching of Emmett Till, and particularly the use of his mother and using his funeral and um, images of his dead body to publicize the brutalization of lynching and racism in the Jim Crow South. And uh, thinking about her as using her middle class, um, presenting herself in a way that you know, really emphasized her middle-class status. She was very well-dressed and very um, 
well-spoken and the ways in which newspapers, not nationally, but even internationally, um, talked about her and her role in that position um, really sort of uh, is where my interest in television developed. I made the connection between um, uh, representations of black middle-class women. Um, I made that connection between Mamie Till, Emmett Till's mother, and the show Julia, which starred Diane Carroll in 1968 to 1971. I'm thinking about how that show, which focused on a, um, a widowed single mother of a son who lived in an integrated apartment in Los Angeles. She was middle-class, very well-dressed, very well-spoken. And so I started to make those connections and really sort of developing my interest in black middle-class motherhood in that way. And then my interest in television just continued to grow from there. Okay. I was trying to figure out how I would follow up that, that excellent and, and really moving discussion on how you um, – came to your topic. I actually became a historian because of um, Emmett Till. So mm. I'm over here listening to you saying, yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Um, anyway, so I want to talk a little bit more about Julia, but what, as you were speaking, um, one of the things that occurred to me is the way in which reality TV right now, we have had to, with every season opening, we've had to look at some reference to um, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, which is great for the regular public. Um, but for some of us, we are very, very triggered. So I wanted to hear a little bit about what you think about what some of the Bravo shows are doing in terms of black lives matter, or even uh, covering the pandemic. Yes, please. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I think what's happening that is a little bit different from the way that reality television and specifically the housewives is overlapping with current events. It is, different within the context of the pandemic and specifically Black Lives Matter, as opposed to the way that the Real Housewives overlapped with real events during, say, like the 2016 election, which I specifically am thinking about the Real Housewives of New York when Carol is like watching the election on television and everyone is sort of um, either feeling what she's feeling or some of Ramona's friends who were like very excited for her. Trump winning. Um, and so you're, you're living, reliving the um, election by watching the Real Housewives of New York in that way. And then I was also thinking about how the effects of the Great Recession played out on the Real Housewives of Orange County um, when it did. I don't remember exactly which season that was in particular. But this seemed to be something that was celebrated as if like the housewives now are becoming a primary source for being able for future generations to look back and sort of see how these events played out in real life and how they're reflecting a lot of the ways in which people are, you know, emotionally responding to them. The pandemic and Black Lives Matter has not quite done that, whereas I feel like the treatment of the pandemic and watching a bunch of women get together and somehow seemingly you know, not really follow any CDC guidelines, although I'm sure that they are tested. I think that's become kind of cringeworthy for a lot of people, um, even though that I think for a lot of Americans, that is how they very, you know, actually did treat the pandemic. And then what's interesting with Black Lives Matter in particular is how that topic is, is sort of influencing, it's influencing the direction of the show as much as it's influencing um, the responses from 
the women who are on TV. And what I mean by influencing the direction of the show is I think that the show felt like there was an obligation to respond to um, these events in a way that they had typically, if you know, maybe glossed over or felt like if it didn't naturally come up in some way that it was okay to not cover it. Um, but I'm curious what you all think about how they are treating the pandemic and Black Lives Matter in that way. Well, can I actually throw us into um, kind of a conversation about how Andy Cohen is trying to navigate this? Um, yes. He's been really vocal and, you know, the articles are coming out about how he feels like housewives shouldn't be, you know, canceled or, you know, judged, received the kind of fan hate that they get um, because of their political stances. And I'm, and I feel like this is watching Andy Cohen uh, try to justify the actions of some of his favorites in live time mm-hmm. as they come under fire, especially for how they've maybe handled COVID or um, for their political support of um, Donald Trump in you know, the 2020 election, not just the 2016 election. And so uh, I, I wonder if that is also an important part of this conversation, because then it also seems to me that it's um, a way of saying that he didn't agree, perhaps, with the Vanderpump Rules firings um, that came in the wake of uh, the George Floyd murder. So, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Kate. Please go ahead. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, what's interesting about The Real Housewives is I would say that it's probably one of the few shows where you have a cross ideological audience watching the television show, meaning you're going to get people who consider themselves liberal and conservative who are viewers. Now, I know that they have revealed in a recent article, like the breakdown, I think out of all of the franchises, the Real Housewives of Atlanta typically has the most liberal viewership. And um, I can't remember if it was OC that had the most conservative viewership, but I still think that there's going to be crossover with a lot of those shows. And so <laughs> it allows for this dialogue to happen in a way that other shows that are maybe normally considered something more for like a liberal viewer and conservatives don't engage with and then vice versa. And so because you have both these types of audiences watching the show and it it allows for this type of conversation to happen but you can't have it both ways um and i think that's what andy cohen is trying to do especially with bravo tv sort of have their cake and eat it too by showing that they care and they are listening and they are making these adjustments for shows that have for their programs that have you know all black cast like the way that Mm -hmm. it has become a storyline through atlanta but then criticize or say that, you know, we can't have the same type of treatment for these other shows for the people he might have as his favorites, like Ramona Singer or the women on OC. You know, you can't talk about race on one show and then, um, you know, engage in this type of dialogue that's very much political and very politicized and then sort of condemn people for applying that same sort of politicized analysis and critique of another uh, one of the other um, series in a different city. And and so I think that his frustration is trying to balance these two things in which he's not capable of doing, because obviously the type of people who watch The Real Housewives um, 
you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed audience. And so how do you square those two things? And he's really been coming under fire, I think more so than ever before, in regards to his treatment of of black women um, when mm-hmm. he gets to reunions. And it's um, painfully obvious that he has a different standard that he holds with the White Housewives. Right. I've noticed that, too, in his accountability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would we be noticing this had Nini not brought it up? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Right. Because it's it's always been a theme, right? That the that you know the quote unquote um, violence of of the black housewife, which is a horrendous racial stereotype that Andy Cohen perpetuates. I absolutely agree. I'm 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 yeah. being the advocate here. I absolutely <laughs> agree. The black women are loud and they're angry, and even the people who come on the show. I'm thinking about Jennifer um, Shaw. She's mimicking mm. a particular kind of blackness of being loud and angry, even though she's not black herself. Right, right. Now the criminality. Now that 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 is mimicking uh, some of the white women on, on Housewives and Apollo Nida. Um, but the criminality associated with Jen Shaw that 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 doesn't necessarily uh, match with some of the other stereotypes. Or I mean, even if you break down the way that um, you know Apollo was um talked it was treated and talked about as a quote-unquote criminal right but um white housewives who have you know had criminal charges are treated much much differently you mean the free juicy campaign and the free Teresa campaign or the fact that you can even go on etsy and like get coasters of their mug shots right as like a set mm-hmm. like you know real housewives of prison you know and with it, it's really it's really quite disgusting even though wasn't Apollo, sorry, Kate, I'm going to let you jump in just a minute. Weren't Apollo and Joe in the same prison at one point? Oh, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. I think they, at one point they were in the same uh, uh, prison or uh, uh, I feel like this was in the, in the blogs. I will have to go back and make sure it was in an actual credible source that said this and not something else. But anyway, Kate, I've over talked to you. Please, you're the expert. Talk to us. Oh, no, I, I, I love this. Uh, no, I was just thinking that the White Housewives have evaded this sort of, you know, um, stereotype of, uh, you know, violence that has, has you know, landed on the um, Atlanta Housewives. Because uh, I keep thinking about not just Jen Shaw, but Tamara Judge was the first housewife to throw a glass at someone, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. um, a wine glass. And they, uh, between Tamara and Kelly Dodd and... Um, oh, my God. Cindy Even Ramona. Donaldson, they are... And Ramona, they are so loud and so vile and so angry in the way that they get in people's faces and even and, and um, coming into their personal space, uh, you know, throwing objects. And that type of uh, stereotype just doesn't land with them. And that's before and you even, even get to New Jersey and, you know, yes. brandishing broken glass at each other forget. and flipping tables. Let's Did not you forget. Yeah, and the flipping tables. Not yet. Right. Yes. Have we mentioned oh, pooping on Rana. people's floor? Well, I was going to say that Ramona threw that glass and cut Kristen's lip at the lake only a few seasons after Tamara threw the wine glass. Yes, that's right. I forgot about all of these. Yeah. And even I was thinking, too, um, you know, Vicky and Tamara, when they got Gretchen naked wasted and like even the um, how that storyline kind of parallels the storyline of Atlanta with uh, Portia and. Uh, candy, right? These threats of like yep. getting someone 
inebriated in order to, you know, manipulate them or to do something with them. But like that was a very similar storyline and it just it just didn't stick the same way that it But did on O C it actually happened. We saw them giving Gretchen yeah. alcohol, right? There's just a right. rumor now. I have, we saw her son trapping Gretchen in a room. Right. It was it was some of the yeah. darkest television I think I've ever seen. It was uncomfortable to watch. But let's bring Tamara back for the Real Housewives <laughs> All Stars. <laughs> okay, so let me. I want. Okay, there were so many things you said. I want to go back to this issue. This issue slash thought of. Bravo and the Housewives and reality TV right now being a primary source that people will look back on. Um, here at the Bravo Bravo Demic show, we enjoy using Bravo in classes all the time. Can you talk a bit more about how it could be a primary source? Or is it just obvious because we're all scholars? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's a primary source on a couple of different levels because it's going to be a primary source for how a certain person of class and race and gender status are experiencing these major historical events, like the Great Recession, you know, like the pandemic, that, that sort of thing. Um, but the way in which I study television is it's not just what, it's not just um, what the source is presenting to audiences, that's one part of it, but the other is how audiences are responding to what they're watching on television and really unpacking um, like just like how we were talking about just now, some of the ways in which the responses to these television events are very much racialized, you know, how they are gendered um, and sort of getting a bigger sense of the way that people are thinking about and engaging with the discourse about race and gender, you know, in 2020 or in 2009 with the recession and, and things like that. So it's a primary source, not just in showing how the housewives are experiencing these events, but how we as viewers are responding to what we're watching and how that's being portrayed. Excellent. Thank you. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the theme for the need of realness in 1970s sitcoms that you came across in your research and how this all, um, comes together in in your first book project that you're working on right now titled Living Room Liberalism Politics Television and Social Change 1960 to 1980. And of course we want to hear all about your process of transitioning your dissertation into a book. So there's lots of stuff here and wherever you want to go with it is great. Sure. I actually discovered um the theme for realness in early 1960s television. Um, I, I think that I thought it would be later, especially when we think about these famous shows that are associated with Norman Lear's production, you know, like All in the Family and Good Times, Maud. Um, but I was really struck by how television producers of the early 1960s were using this term um, realness or uh, thinking about uh, telling it like it is. That was a phrase that they would use very frequently. Uh, they wanted to make television as realistic as possible. And so as I dug deeper in my archival research, I noticed that there was a, not just a correlation in the way that television producers were thinking about producing TV in the early 1960s, but that there was an actual connection between the political and the cultural worlds here. Um, they were very much influenced by um, 
John F. Kennedy's New Frontier political platform. They were in dialogue with each other, some of the people from um, John F. Kennedy's administration. And they wanted to incorporate a lot of his ideas into the television shows that they presented. So this, of course, places um, the creation of early TV shows within a Cold War and civil, civil rights context. But I started to notice that um, as the, you know, direct political influence in the direction that TV producers were creating television, you know, the influence that it was, it was, I feel like I should rephrase that. <laughs> um, the, there was a direct influence um, from uh, politicians in the direction that entertainment television was going. This had to do with a lot of things. One of it was, one thing in particular was the Cold War. Um, so as television was being aired internationally, uh, John F. Kennedy expressed concern along with his famous FCC chairman, Newton Minow, who famously declared that television was a vast wasteland. But Minow and Kennedy both expressed concern that um, television, you know, what was airing on TV with these zany housewives and these Western shows and lots of violence. That was going to make the United States look bad in their fight during the Cold War. You know, how could anyone make a claim for democracy um, when what they were watching uh, in terms of American television consisted of just superficial, fluffy entertainment? And so there was a push from the FCC at that time to not make you know television news better, to not to not just uh, improve that sector of television, but actually to make entertainment television better. And so they used the power of the FCC to sort of, you know, push producers into creating more meaningful content. And they used the language of Kennedy's new frontier to do that, you know, to say that they needed to sacrifice profits in order to have their moral compass really guide the way that they wanted to create TV. Um, the Cold War and some of these Cold War ideas were not as, um, interesting to the American public, but with the overlap of the civil rights movement and how much that was being presented on television news, it seems like a natural way to sort of increase more realistic content into entertainment TV. You know, this wasn't simply altruistic. I mean, there was a lot of pushback from the NAACP for years for the entertainment industry to include more diversity in the television and film industry. And so they were responding to not just the appeals of the FCC in terms of making sure that they could renew their broadcasting license, but also from um, responding to, you know, civil rights demands on, on behalf of activists who were making a claim as to why they needed to um, uh, uh, hire more African-Americans in the film and TV industry. And then also the argument was made on behalf of activists, too, that echoed Kennedy's new frontier, which is to say that if you want to make TV more realistic, it is unrealistic to exclude African-Americans from the television landscape. So they were really using that language to make arguments for that, for why they needed to be included. Um, and so as television starts to make these um, attempts to become more realistic in entertainment television, how that realism, you know, um, was presented changes over time. I document this as a transition from problem solving to problem consciousness. So anybody who has ever watched an old TV show um, 
from the early 1960s and even mid-1960s probably is aware of that type of programming where you learn a lesson at the end (laughs) and there's some sort of like moral message to uh, as the takeaway at the end of a sitcom or drama. Um, And so it's very more direct what the lesson is of every episode. But by the time you get to the late 1960s and early in early 1970s, especially with the development of these Norman Lear productions, you start to move towards a way to make more realistic content um, in a way that would arouse people's consciousness about certain problems. So rather than teaching viewers explicitly, you know, how to integrate society, you know, or how to integrate a public school, for example, you know, an episode and good times might be just about sort of showing people and making the viewers aware of the type of issues someone living in the project might have. So you're not necessarily learning a specific lesson, but you're arousing your consciousness about what it is like for other people living in different parts of the U.S. and what their experiences are. So out of this naturally comes um, the first reality TV show, which was An American Family, and it debuted in 1973. And so you get a reality television show because it's sort of part of this larger trend of television producers who want to try to continuously make television as realistic as possible. Um, I view the first reality TV show to also be reflective of this larger, um, you know, activist context in terms of thinking about the use of consciousness raising and the way in which we're talking about our feelings, you know, and that's also steeped in a therapy culture that is specific to um, like the popular psychology of the 1970s. But the first reality TV show is interesting because it really mimics the Real Housewives programs that we're familiar with today. I guess I could talk a little bit about An American Family. Should I do that? Totally. Totally. This this is the first time I'm hearing this. I thought the first reality show was Battle of the Network Stars. Okay. (laughs) Well, An American Family, they filmed in 1971 and 72. It aired in 1973. But the premise of the show was to sort of document like the, you know, the last American family or what's left of it, you know, because it's the 1970s and we have this increase in divorce rates and feminism and the sexual revolution. And so the producer of this show wanted to document an American family meeting as if it was this sort of dying entity. And so he chose an upper middle class family in Santa Barbara. It was a husband and wife. And I think five children, maybe it was four or five, I can't recall. And um, they filmed um, for, I can't remember how many months exactly, I would say it's close to a year. And they wanted to just really document the ins and outs of the family. They um, wanted the family to sort of get used to being filmed. Uh, They had lighter cameras at this time, so it allowed for the portability of cameras and cameramen to travel with the family. They also installed cameras all over the house and use the same type of essentially like um, surveillance uh, technology that Richard Nixon used to record himself in the White House. That technology was new, so they used it in the production of the first reality TV show. And it allowed, with the hidden cameras and the bugging of the telephones and stuff, it, sort of, it allowed for the family to, what they wanted to at least, was to forget that they were being filmed so that they could, you know, really get on, on camera um, them existing within their natural state. But in the process of filming this show, the wife ends up 
telling her husband that she wants to file for a divorce at the end and their eldest son comes out of the closet. And so it really becomes this very sensationalized TV show. And just like the housewives, they film all of this footage and then they edited it so that they could pull through certain storylines when they're airing it to the American public. And so obviously they're divorced to the storyline, the coming out of their eldest son, Lance was a storyline. And then before the show aired, they, after this was said and done, they had um, interviews with the um, husband and wife separately to sort of talk about um, what the experience was, was, was like for them. Very much similar to like the testimonials that the housewives do when they're being interviewed throughout the season, you know, and um, because they talked about how the, you know, they eventually, uh, the filming of the show, not the filming of the show didn't lead to their divorce, but how it sort of filmed the, the unfolding and unraveling of their marriage. Viewers knew from the very beginning of the series that this is what was going to happen in the end. Um, so I just think that it's interesting that the format of the first reality TV show actually mirrors the format of The Real Housewives as we know it. Um yeah okay here's my knowledge of american family now that you discussed described it i believe there was a saturday night live skit around the american family but no one got it but no one got it (laughs) um and i don't even know how i know this random fact but i feel like that there was a i am going to go deep into the snl archive and and find this um and i'll also add that well wendy williams does say that no one should do reality tv because their marriage will come will fall apart so (laughs) There we go. Change over time. No. Yes. <laughs> I'm done inserting. Continuity. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a second part of that question, but I already forgot what it was. Was there? I, it's, it's okay. I don't, I don't remember. It's the end of the quarter semester. Was there? Oh, yeah. I know. Um, so liberalism can be a tricky word and concept to define um, and particularly discuss with students. So I'm interested to know, how do you define liberalism and then how do you teach liberalism in the classroom? Ooh, good question. Um, Well, I don't really define liberalism in a clear-cut, neat definition. I do teach it as a set of ideas that develop over time. Um, When I teach it, I start with the expansion of the welfare state under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, But when I get to the 1960s, I really teach about the development of liberal ideology as something that's rooted in John F. Kennedy's New Frontier and Johnson's Great Society. And so with that, there are certain themes that are specific to this 1960s liberalism, um, specifically themes about... uh, you know, uh, eradicating poverty, um, using uh, the state to create social welfare programs that are specific and related to jobs, alleviating racial unrest. Um, And and so I I teach it more as like a a set of ideas that are associated um, with liberalism, as opposed to having students come away with a neat definition. But in my research, I use the term cultural liberalism to mean something that's specific to television in particular. Um, I borrowed the term actually from Daniel Widener. He uses the term cultural liberalism in his book, Black Arts West. 
And uh, he specifically talks about it in, re- in relation to how um, white liberals from the entertainment industry came into Watts after the 1965 Watts uprising and created these writers' workshops that allowed, um, uh, you know, black people in Watts to express themselves through cultural expression, to write poetry, um, you know, through, um, through different forms of art, um, and, and how they use, and so how these white liberals sort of created a space that was meant to not just allow for cultural expression, but at the same time teaching black people in this area skills that could be applicable for jobs down the road, essentially. Okay. And so what I do, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) So I, I use, I use that term in relation to television. Um, so sort of moving beyond, uh, past Watts and going all the way into the 1960s and 70s. But I even think that's the way Bravo is responding to some of these TV shows. I'm sorry, to some of the moments recently is sort of reflective of this type of cultural liberalism. So with cultural liberalism, I essentially mean how, um, white liberals in the television industry thought that they could educate viewers while also facilitating racial reconciliation while also providing jobs to African-Americans in the entertainment industry. So it's essentially merging these political goals with authentic representations in, in, in the construction of television production. And in the process, they used certain things that were very specific to cultural liberals, like they really, really relied on the experts and they wanted to. And so one of the ways in which they did that was for white liberals to say, like, I can't write TV shows for black people. We need to create programs that will allow African-Americans to become television writers Mm. so that they can translate their experience to the small screen. So they created these um, job training programs that would not only allow them to create a pipeline um, for African-Americans to enter the entertainment industry, but then in the process, make television itself more realistic and improve the quality of TV as well. And then as a result of that, simultaneously educating the American public about race issues. Okay, so this is my disclaimer. I want to go mm-hmm. back to the Watts Arts Movement. And, mm-hmm. you know, because I understand what you're saying about TV, and you would think that if, if, if these programs for more inclusivity had actually worked, we wouldn't be where we are now, which is still a, a lack of people of color in the writing room. Minus Shonda Rhimes. Okay, minus Shonda Rhimes. I'm saying until recently. Um I want to go off as a, as a history nerd, but I also want to stay to, to the topic. So maybe we'll have an after talk about some of these questions I have. There's a whole back narrative to um, African-American artists and, and being creatives in and of themselves. So I'm trying to stay close to this cultural liberalism art, uh, argument, which I understand, without giving the other side of the story. So that's, that's why I'm struggling over here. You can, you can go there if you'd like. You know, it's like the 20th and 21st century. I'm not comfortable there. (laughs) I think I know what I'm saying, but I'm not comfortable. So I'll just leave it with, um, and I haven't read Danny Widener's book. I know the argument, but I haven't read the book. Um, I'll just leave it with, we also need to say that as much as, uh, this, um, activity was going on in Watts. There are the five, the four poets and, and the arts, Watts arts workshop, I believe, and other things coming out of Watts that are generated for and by black people. So I just wanted to say that kind of 
disclaimer versus, mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at HBCUs, we know it was white liberal philanthropists and, and white churches that set up HBCUs. But that also, for example, comes from a, a tradition of black people already educating themselves. So I just felt like the, I just wanted to give that other point of view because um, I completely hear what you're saying about cultural liberalism. Um, let me just transition to this. Maybe I haven't had enough caffeine today because I'm not feeling like I'm articulating anything. Um, we know that MLK and other civil rights leaders understood the role that the media could play in advancing a cause. And we also know there's extensive literature on the impact of TV and on the civil rights movement and vice versa. So can you give us some examples of where we would see this? And then what is the relationship between TV television and integrate integration and I would even add segregation mm-hmm. yeah the history of um, television and the civil rights movement is usually always sort of um, specific to television news you know and you might get some of those like special reports um, or special documentaries but it's always uh, usually specifically related to television news. Um, what I'm trying to do is to say that we can look at the history of the civil rights movement and entertainment television and sort of um, broaden our understanding of the relationship between those two uh, parts of, uh, you know, culture and politics in that way. But what's interesting about um, entertainment television in particular is especially when there are these efforts to increase black voices and black representation on television, at least historically. And I'm finding this based off of the, the, the small little things that I'm seeing in relation to um, some of the changes in representation just in the last year for Bravo is that you're getting, you're receiving this backlash from people who feel like integration is being forced upon in their homes through the type of content that they're watching. And so this is what I saw specifically in 1968 or after 1968, because there's a dramatic increase in television shows um, in sitcoms in particular, more so than dramas, um, but, but even so with dramas, but um, an increase in black representation. And so you have a lot of white viewers who are writing in to these networks claiming that um, uh, integration is being forced upon them. And so I always sort of try to distinguish the difference between segregation and integration, at least within a television landscape, mm-hmm. because... I feel like when it came to this famous television imagery of civil rights activists who were fighting against um, uh, racist segregationists in the South, the story is often told this generated a lot of sympathy among white viewers in particular. And so I think that there's a difference between documenting the fight against segregation Mm -hmm. as opposed to having television actually represent the effects of integration into TV and then, you know, simultaneously into people's homes. Um, and so based off of what I'm hearing a little bit about um, from Bravo, you know, there's an interview where Leva from Southern Charm is interviewed and she just quickly says in one statement, you know, she was getting a lot of heat from viewers who were saying that her presence, not just the presence, her physical presence on the show, but her insistence on talking about race as the film as they were filming in the middle of the uh, protest in response to George Floyd's murder that summer in the South, that her insistence on talking about race really like ruined the show for a lot of viewers. And, you know, made them, that's not why they watch Southern Charm. 
And so there's a parallel with the ways in which there's these increase in representation. It's usually followed by a backlash in how people feel like it's sort of ruining their viewing experience. Wow. Well, well, I, like be how, I like that twist. I like that integration <laughs> segregation twist. Wow. And we're going to kind of wrap a lot of this up, I think, talking about Southern Charm in the second half of the interview. So I don't want to let us tip the hand too much before we get there. Okay. But um, this is also great. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on these connections between the black freedom struggle and the culture wars and how that plays out on television programming. Yeah. Um, so the, that's a good question to think about the black freedom struggle and culture wars because uh, it very much gets entangled, especially with, as, as I had mentioned before, you know, there's um it's not just about representation as much as, although that's part of it, but I feel like it's just the representation of the ideology. And I think that's where the black freedom struggle, um, you know, meets the culture wars and where that tension is coming from. So <laughs> what can I talk about? Well, I guess I don't want to get ahead of myself, but you I can have an talk about whatever you want. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that nod was well, for me not to jump ahead. The nod, the production nod a minute ago was for me not to jump ahead. Okay. Um, so the way that I view the connection between the black freedom struggle and the culture wars is more in, more in line with how there is um, uh, it, 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 it diversification in the ideology as much as the representation. So what Bravo TV had a history of doing was before and doing before was sort of this insert and when it came to any sort of diversity on their white franchise shows, you know. So thinking about like the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills when they had Joyce, I can't remember her last name. Um, Joyce, who was, uh, I think maybe the first non-white cast mm -hmm. member. She was Puerto Rican. And um, so they include her, of course, in that series, Brandy Glanville makes one of the most heinous racist remarks that I do feel like Andy Cohen really let her off the hook with um, in terms of making a, a comment about how black people can't swim. Mm. Um, well, that's not a political that, statement, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes, exactly. But it but is. To, but it is because yeah, I just what, did. A, I yeah, just Max did was a being session. sarcastic. Yeah, right. Being <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> clearly, I want to talk about the session that I that I went to yesterday about African divers in 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 uh, Africa in the 17th and 18th century. So back to Andy being racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> back to Andy being racist. Yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is like with with some and then Kelly Dodd is another example, right? Like they insert these. Um, uh, women of color and stir, and then it doesn't disrupt the show. But what you're seeing in the last year as they're trying to really diversify these all-white casts, and I'm going to talk about a series now that I've never watched, but I read all of the Bravo blogs, so I feel like I know a lot about it. But the example is for The Real Housewives of Dallas, which I don't watch. And they've recently added Tiffany Moon, Dr. Tiffany Moon, to the cast, who is Asian-American, and from what I understand, based off of the Bravo blogs, there's a lot of tension between her and um, this other white cast member who previously made a racist remark against Asian Americans in the past, 
who do you all watch Dallas? Do you know her name? Yes, we've been watching. I've been watching because her name of is Tiffany. Also, Brandy. Yes, as a matter oh, of fact, okay. true. Different. Oh, there was, they've got a, uh, a real theme going on at Bravo. <laughs> Never um, trust a Brandy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or at least Brandy with uh, an I, maybe is what we should say. Oh, okay. no, Glanville also has an I. It, 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 is she? Oh, white? they. Aren't they both? Aren't they both brandies with an eye? Uh, whatever. Go on. Sorry <laughs> to derail. <laughs> so I feel like I'm talking in circles here. I hope I'm making sense. But my so what I'm trying to get at is there's this previous thing that they did with insert women and stir, and it worked out. But now they're starting to see that when you're putting these non-white women into these all-white casts, and now race is a central part of the storyline for at least the women of color. Um, what is happening is. And this is what Andy Cohen is getting at when he says, like, the, you know, that's not the the vibe of the show that Bravo is trying to go for. It changes the meaning of the show. It changes what the show was supposed to be. It's no longer escapism. And um, and this is something that some of the viewers are also complaining about as well. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that you would think that by inserting women of color into an all-white cast and having the discussion of race really change the entire tenor of the entire show, that that would elicit some sort of reflection on behalf of Bravo TV to say, well, what does this say about the way our show is constructed? Um, theoretically, what does it say about the way that the show is cast? Um, you know, to have some sort of introspection. You know, answering those questions is going to get at how and why and what institutionalized racism looks like within the television industry, but they seem to be failing to make this connection. Um, so what I'm trying to get at is to say that these shows work out fine if you introduce a woman of color and they just essentially never talk about race. But when that ideological addition to the show is then added, um, then all of a sudden, you know, this is where you can really see the ways in which the long tradition of institutionalized racism is really playing out in these TV shows. And rather than Bravo reflecting on that and saying, you know, what can we do to change this? What, what does this mean about our show? Uh, they're sort of doubling down on, you know, just falling more towards the escapism side of the entertainment, but even sort of not, you know, failing to understand what escapism, you know, uh, how you can't, talk about race and escapism together, you know, is a failure to understand and a short shortcoming on their end, I think. Well, and fans, fans have always known, right. That you can't get around this race issue. For example, you know, fans with Roa and Kim Zolciak in the early years. And, you know, it was, it was always there. Uh, and, uh, people who could claim escapism, uh, I just don't think uh, A, wanted to see these issues or B, had even ever considered that they existed. I don't think that's what the issue is. Because if you go back to the first season of RHOC, um, the several people on the show throw around homophobic slurs all over mm-hmm. the show. But and that's, no that's one, what I'm saying is that the the people that would claim that this was always escapism for them, they would see no problem with it. No, that's what I mean. So okay. suddenly somebody's in the cast or peripheral to the cast, like one of the friends of the show or somebody's in the cast, like Dr. Tiffany Moon. 
And that suddenly makes people uncomfortable because suddenly like casual homophobia or in this case, casual racism against Asian Americans like doesn't fly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I, th- I think I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I think yeah. we're saying the same thing, yeah. which is why I brought up the example of Roa because it was always, that was always part of the dynamic with Kim Zolciak in the early years too. So, thanks. I'm, I'm glad we were saying this. <laughs> yeah, I just said it with a little more like, oh. I think we need, to, we need to qualify to anyone listening. We are all in the end of the quarter, the end of the semester, yeah. or midway through the quarter. Uh, a year of doing Zoom, a year of, of everything. I think we're all falling apart. I, I mean, we have, like I said, we have teething now. We have bicuspids growing in. So, I have been awake this a whole week. So I might not be as articulate as normal. But now, oh, sorry. I feel the same way. Like, I don't know if my last answer just made sense at all. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is these, they had instances where some of the all-white cast weren't always all-white, and it never was a problem before. And I think it's because Bravo never let it become one. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the Brandy issue with Joyce, like that should have really played out more, and they really should have engaged that um, – comment much more in the show and they and they didn't and so now with these cast members who are sort of you know really um bringing race to the table in these shows and and not letting it die down in one episode or or half an episode i think that's what's changing the show and so there is something going on with bravo that's changing is it that something with bravo is changing i mean yes bravo is trying to like rebrand itself during this moment but um is it that Bravo is changing or that um, in the midst of all of this, like in between uh, Orange County coming out in the mid 2000s to now, uh, Bravo has a much higher social media presence. And so well, social, me- social media is even a much, much bigger thing than it ever was in 2008. Yeah. And like now it's like a thing to comment on Twitter for instance, like I had to get off Twitter, like my personal account <laughs> to get off because I just got so invested in like these fights where it would like consume my day. But like now you have people having serious debates with the Bravo TV hashtag. And so like somebody at Bravo has to at least record on some level, like what are people saying about these shows as they're happening? Right. Like now there seems to be a little bit more fan interaction with the content on the show, whereas before. So I don't know. It just seems a little Pollyanna-ish for these people who say, like, the shows were never political. They were, you know, or or that, like, they were always escapism. I, I think that it's just now, like, the mode, of a commu- the mode of communication is so much more immediate and, like, people's responses are so much more diffuse, like, across society that, like... It's hard to ignore the racist element in the room. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Bravo wants to change. <laughs> yeah. I think that a lot of this is just lip service. And the point I was trying to make, which I don't know if came out clearly, is by just saying, like, OK, all we have to do is add a woman of color to all of these housewives franchises. And like, mm-hmm. this is going to fix the problem. And what it's doing is really putting a magnifying glass on what exactly the problem is with Bravo. And rather than reflect on that and see that as a reflection of their show and what they're producing, um, they're saying it's just, you know, it's it's no longer escapism anymore. It's no longer fun. Right. Well, even just as they 
you know, vet people before they put them on the television. It's, it's clear that they never, you know, before thought it would be any issue to cast people who have, um, you know, have made habits of using racial slurs on social media. There's been so many points where they could have pulled back and, and chosen a different option. And I, and I feel like choices they've made to then, for example, in below in below deck to then edit out people they cast as production is rolling. It's, it's another one of these examples that they don't really want to change. They're just trying to navigate this sort of social media criticism of them in real time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does somebody like Kim Zolziak complicate our analysis of the, oh, <laughs> Jessica? <laughs> this is a perfect example of perhaps being racist, perhaps, but then getting your own show. So you and your husband can, can then go along in your beautiful white lives. I actually love Tardy for the Party because <laughs> the kids are so cute. But Kim, Kim complicates everything well i'm also saying it in the context of you know in in recent years on bravo the idea is like we have all these all white casts let's add a woman of color and stir and see what happens but like atlanta was the first integrated cast right Mm -hmm. because you have at least Mm -hmm. one white woman with very problematic (laughs) ideas and um in a cast that's predominantly african-american so like does that I, I don't know if that's going anywhere, but like does that change how we think of this evolution or trajectory of like adding in a person of color and suddenly it's controversial to audiences, everyone's silent. So. Well, I have a so yes, yes, yeah. Max. <laughs> but also let's go back to Kim. I was just thinking of how to say this. I always think it's interesting, and I think Atlanta does get the bad quote-unquote rap on everything. Uh-huh. We bring in Kim, who's um, in a relationship. She's basically a mistress to a man of color. Um, and I just think it's interesting that that's where she makes her debut on Atlanta because increasingly I've been looking at this uh, parallel between Atlanta and uh, Potomac mm-hmm. and and kind of middle-class mor- uh, uh, morality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that Kim, in addition to her personality, she just... Was she a good fit for Atlanta? I think she was. Mm-hmm. But I also think that's also kind of, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> you were going somewhere that sounded I was good. going somewhere, but I don't know what I'm, I didn't, it, I, I need that last little piece to put it together. Mm-hmm. So I'll just go with, yes. So uh, Roa was the first integrated cast and that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's time now for our Bonko Party game break. And I'm gonna I'm gonna put the caveat in here that this is the first ever Bonko Party that I am not in charge of. I relinquished the game just for today to Max um, because I can't work the soundboard. Um, So I asked him to select six. Uh, television themes and he is going to play them for us and the three of us are going to um, try to write down what the themes are and whoever uh, identifies the most themes correctly wins 
And then Max won't do bonko parties again. They'll come back to me. The official That's name. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. I'm taking this over. <laughs> the official name for this game today is Name That Tune. Take it away, Max. <laughs> this is killing me. I know it is. All right. Oh, uh, Max is in charge. I can cheat. Do yeah. we shout out? Do we shout out the the um, show, or do we just keep it to ourselves to the end? Oh, let's really shout it out. Casey's OCD okay. is just like going over time. Right if we shout it out, then then like we won't all get it. I, I thought we would just write it down, and then Max okay. would, Max would let us say what we thought it was. Okay, I will. Max and Jessica are enjoying this way too much. They can like really see I'm squirming with this. The power. <laughs> Okay, so Max, what are All the right. rules? Do we scream it out or do we write it down? Uh, write it down, and then if if somebody clearly knows what it is and other people are are stumped, you can scream it out. Okay, great. Yeah, we'll do it that way. Okay. Compromise. Okay. Like Solomon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna play. The, I'll just play these in random order. Um. So, um, some of these songs have lyrics, so I got the instrumental versions of them instead. So if you're thrown off by that, that's why. Uh, some of them I only did, like, shorter clips of so that um, you don't hear what the lyrics are. Because, like, some of the I lyrics are literally, like, the song. Good times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. And some of these, uh, I don't know if Casey said this, but some of these are from Bravo TVs, and then some of these are 70s theme songs, TV theme songs. Roll it. All right. I'm so nervous. I'm very confident. Okay. <laughs> it started easy. Okay. We're ramping up. Are we going to shout it out now or later? Do Kate, did you know what it was? Yes. Okay, you want to you shout it out. All right. Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, I so failed that one. It was, I had OC. I so failed. <laughs> it's really interesting um, how the different um, Real Housewives franchises are all slightly different. Mm-hmm. I instantly heard uh, Lisa Vanderpump in my head. Throw me, me to the wolves. I'll come back leading the pack. Is that what her? I, I, heard I it mean, too. I meant Real Housewives Beverly Hills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have no idea. I am so confident. Kate. What do you say, Kate? I know I've heard it, but I cannot think of what song it is. I know it's not Chips. <laughs> I'm like, it's uh, not Chips. Is it Starsky and Hutch? It's not Starsky and Hutch. 
Who shot Jr.? Yeah, that was the Dallas um, theme song. Yeah, in the honor original Dallas theme song. Yeah, in I honor was way off. Yeah, I figured so on Dallas. Um, there's like a big plot line going on right now in the original. They're in uh, Jr.'s house. They are indeed, and uh, they're like spending the night. And Brandy, in fact, was the one who got right. It was Brandy. Yeah, Brandy got drunk and messed up the actual set with Carrie. With Carrie. JR's bedroom from the show. Like they have it all blocked off, so no one is supposed to go in there when you go on the tour. But that carries a problem. I mean, Brandy and Carrie together, terrible. More destructive than Ramona and Sonia. Oh, by far. (laughs) What other insults could there be in Dallas, in 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 Texas, but to to desecrate the scene where JR was shot? I don't know. When Ozzy peed on the Alamo, that was pretty bad. That was pretty bad too. <laughs> All right. Okay, next. Um, not really. I made a guess, and it could be completely wrong. Oh. I'm going to be so embarrassed. Uh, I guessed Charlie's Angels. No, oh, that's I guess. I thought Charlie's Angels too. When I when I was thinking, I feel about better this. that you guessed that too. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought MacGyver. I felt it was some. You're all on the right track, but so not. And in fact, if is it Magnum PI? No, it's not Magnum PI. Was it Starsky and Hutch? No, not Starsky and Hutch. It was the uh, Bionic Woman. I almost said Bionic Man. Oh, man. Yeah. I should have known that. I I love Bionic Woman and Bionic Man. Yeah. I love Bionic Woman and Bionic. I watched both of those. Like, in syndication, obviously. (laughs) I watched it when it ran. Thank you. (laughs) I wasn't going to call you Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Kate, any ideas? I know this one. Real Housewives of Atlanta. Jessica? I'm going to go with Atlanta, too. Kate, I thought it was New York. Jessica and Kate have it. Real wow. Housewives of Atlanta. I almost went New York because I was thinking about the DJ scratching a little bit, and then I realized mm-hmm. I was talking about, like, Ramona's New York, and so that wouldn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> They had one instrumental theme that was um, the Atlanta soundtrack, but it had the New York uh, taglines on it. I thought about using that. Oh, God, that would have been so, that would have been so mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, what's next? 
<laughs> I had to cut. This is one of those that I had to cut because now I could be wrong. So if I if I sing with it and I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I've embarrassed all seven. Do you want kids. me to play it again? Yes. The love boat soon you be da 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 da. The love boat. Would you have Kate? I didn't have anything. I'm really embarrassing myself that I don't know any of the seven sixteen songs, but I only know the Real Housewives. <laughs> yeah, Casey. I wrote the love boat when Jessica started singing it. Oh, that doesn't count. Soon we'll yeah. be making another <laughs> run. <laughs> that counts when you and Jessica play. It. Oh, but there's also times you give us a dirty look and say it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Bonko Party. I can make my own rules. <laughs> I feel like this is you guys getting back at me for almost two years of Bonko parties. Oh, it is. When? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So do we, is that all of them? Or well, there's one, one more. more. Oh, okay, okay. Because I feel there's, like I've won this show. There's actually two more. Okay, great. Oh, two more. You made seven? I made eight. Oh, music is Max's <laughs> thing, and that's where he and I really come together. So, oh, we did this one. Sorry, right? Yeah. No, this is a different no. one. This is a new one. <laughs> Good sign. Really? Yeah, this is a third Real Housewives song, Max. Oh, I remember what I did. Why I'm confused. I'll give a hint. This one's a little bit more deep in the archives of shows on, uh, of uh, Real Housewives shows. What? This is a little bit, like, older. This isn't, like, a current this theme a, that's used. This is, is an old theme. But it's not Real Housewives of D.C.? It is not Real Housewives of D.C. Are you saying it's a retired franchise? No. It's an ongoing franchise, but their theme song yeah. is updated. Yeah, they've changed the theme song in recent years. Is it New York? That's what I thought, too, but I thought it was like an old New York. I was going to go New York. Ding, ding, ding. It is oh. the first season of Roni. Yeah, for some reason, I was like getting a lot of Jill Zarin in my head. But, yeah, I was getting a lot of New York money. It didn't. It didn't um, fit with like the new music for their taglines. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's number seven? Um, no, when I heard that, it sounded like Beverly Hills. So. Oh, it didn't. I didn't. See it's it different. Didn't yeah. <laughs> Kate? Kate, yeah, because I have two very different answers, Kate. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I really was hoping like a Barney Miller or something. These I know. <laughs> I don't know. I think I, I am clearly showing that I know most of the sitcom songs, and so all of the dramas that you've pulled, I haven't, I don't really know. Although I don't know what Love Boat is. Not really a... What? You haven't seen Love Boat? I have never seen Love Boat. 
What? Oh, that was in love. A drama? No, what I just played. I think it's a game show. Oh, it is a game show. It is a game show from the seventies. Can you run it again? Yeah, With that yeah. clue? Wait, 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 wait. I want my half point. No. I get... Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wait, I want a bonus point for knowing it was a game show because that changes it for everybody else. It does. I don't it think does. Jessica would have got this no, if no. she didn't know it was a game show. But I was going to say it was a game show. But I why. said it. Okay, so what's the answer? I think it was the newlywed game. No. no. That's exactly Good what one. I put in. Uh, uh, it was either that or, uh, 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 yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I thought it was newlywed game or Price is Right. Do you, have a, do you have a guess, Kate? Well, I know it's not the Price is Right. That's one I definitely know. I don't know. I guess I'll jump on to the newly um, game. In recent years, Alec Baldwin has taken over hosting duties of this game show. The Pyramid? Let's make a deal. Match game. What's match game? Oh. Where they have six celebrities on a panel and uh, one contestant. They ask the contestant something. The contestant has to write it down and they have to match one of the one or all six of the you couldn't just do hip hop squares or Hollywood squares. I don't uh, even know. Can I can I take a half point? Fine, you, fine, whatever I'll you want. Point. I'll take Jeez. a half point, a quarter point. Casey's waking up the child sleeping next to her. <laughs> My indignant. All right, last one. Okay. <laughs> Oh, Jessica, you have to. Thank you. You definitely know this, Jessica. You definitely know this. I know for a fact you know this. I don't think I know. Thank that. you, Max, for finally giving me a 70s show that I know. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, Kate, what is it? Good times. Good times. Oh, yeah. I almost yeah. put the qualifier out there. This is the qualifier about good times. I was raised in Salt Lake City, Utah. I never watched good times until I was an adult. It didn't air there. Oh, oh, so it's not endemic to my 1970s knowledge. Okay. Take my black card away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I got 2.5 points. Had you just let the words run, I would have been okay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but that's the problem. Um, okay. So we have a tie. Oh. Between Jessica and Kate. Oh. Casey is oh. lost. I'm yeah. actually shocked that Max didn't do... Uh, uh, 66 Batman. I thought about that, but it's all Batman. <laughs> like it just sort of <laughs> gives away the entire plot. So we have a tie between Jessica and Kate. What do we win? Accolades. And and the knowledge that you beat Casey. <laughs> it wasn't going to be hard to do. Ooh, let's have a round of oh, <laughs> Let's have a round of applause or yeah. a victory lap. Victory lap. Hold on. Oy. You didn't watch... Congratulations. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, just so I'm clear, you all have never watched The Love Boat, which means you also didn't watch Fantasy Island that often ran right after it. Do you know who Mr. Rourke is? No. I watched Gilligan's. The Plane. The, the plane. plane. You don't know who. I mean, that looking back about how ableist that was. Uh, um, yes. <laughs> I'm just going to oh, leave yeah. it there. I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. So, all right. Let's bring it on back. Th- thank you, Kate, for uh, helping me to claim victory over one Casey. Yeah, you did a great job. Tied, you beat Casey. And that's really the point of this game. It, to just defeat really Casey. Let's do one of these a year because I don't think she can handle anymore. <laughs> I think this just might be what we're doing from now on when I come up with the games. <laughs> I like this I power. came up with this game. I asked you to help me. I like, okay, so, I like this power. So, as a historian who writes about sitcoms, Kate, what is your favorite oh. past or current show? Um, well, if, if, if we're talking about a sitcom, one of my favorite sitcoms is Superstore. Have you any of you watched it? <laughs> no, no. I watched it. I don't watch oh, it regularly, no. but I know that I, I've watched it. <laughs> Um, I like Superstore, but my favorite TV show that's not a sitcom is Mad Men. Mm. Mad Men's good. What did you think of the finale? Um, I liked the finale. I thought it was very... um, I I, I really liked the finale because it's so... uh, The way that they presented Don Draper at the end is still sort of like driven by... um, you know, exploiting youth culture in a way to make profits at this larger, uh, gosh, it is the end of the semester, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I liked the finale. <laughs> I liked it. Oh. Sorry, I think I crashed and burned on that That's one. okay. No, no, it's no, totally no. fine. Um, <laughs> this is going to get edited, and when you hear it back oh. later, you're going to be like, wait. Were we this stream of conscious? Were we this crisp with our thoughts? I don't remember. <laughs> right. That. Yeah, right. it'll be fine. 
So let's go back into a conversation of the Bravo firings in June of 2021 um, Mm -hmm. after the murder of George Floyd. And I wanted you to talk to us about how this relates to themes in your research and how we should think about all of this in longer histories of television. Um, If you wanted to in any way, if you had thoughts about Stassi's attempted comeback tour you know, wherever you want to go with all of this. Okay. For the Bravo firings in June of 2021, um, you know, Bravo could have fired these same people for what they did at the time during which they did them, but they chose to do it in June of 2021, obviously in response to um, public outrage after the murder of George Floyd. And I think because they waited to fire these people. It, it really did. It didn't come across as genuine as if Bravo was, um, you know, like genuinely remorseful for the, you know, high, keeping these people on television and specifically with the two guys that they brought on to Vanderpump Max. And what was the other one's name? Max and, uh, from Vanderpump Rules, Max will remember these names. Yeah. Uh, the, what were the uh, guys' names on Vanderpump Rules that were fired? Brett. Brett. And oh, Brett, yeah. Max. Yeah. I mean, um, good job, Max. They went, yeah, thank <laughs> it, you. It took me a second, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the really old tweets that were really racist, I mean, that came out way before 2021, and there was public outrage against how could Bravo, you know, not know this, and then upon finding out, still, you know, not edit them out of the show or continue to film them. And so just this, you know, taking as long as they did to finally, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, punish these people for their behavior just seemed didn't seem genuine. But I will say the act of actually trying to do something to demonstrate to the public that you are taking accountability, that is not new. That actually has a longer history. Um, specifically after the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968, there was a reckoning with the television industry that publicly expressed that they played a role, um, or at least they thought that they had a role in the racial unrest in the United States at the time. And um, one of the things that they did was create a bunch of special programs, which allows networks to create on a shorter, um, shorter time frame. So it allowed them to sort of respond in closer to real time than an actual scripted show. And they had uh, a couple of shows in particular. One was called um, Of Black America that was aired on CBS. And that was about the black side of American history. And that aired in the summer, right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. So he was assassinated in April, and these aired in the summer. Another one was Time for American on ABC. Uh, that was on, you know, it, it aired it shows confrontations between white and black Americans. And it's interesting because in the summer after June of 2021, the same thing with Rich in America, where they essentially gathered all of the women of color from the different Bravo series and had them talk about their experiences with racism. So it was a similar type of response. And then in addition to those types of um, shorter, 
almost in real time shows that are very quick and easier to produce. Um, the inclusion of more black representation uh, following these moments um, happened in 1968 and also in 1992 after the LFRF risings as well. And so to give an example, in 1968, there were over 21 television shows that aired in the fall that had recurring black cast members as opposed to, I think it was only seven in 1967. Um, so there was a dramatic increase in black representation in response to uh, the racial unrest after King's assassination. And then you, you see the same types of efforts with Bravo and trying to diversify their white um, white franchises as well. So uh, I, I don't know of any previous instances where people were actually fired, but at the same time, I feel like that's a special circumstance because reality te television is meant to, you know, be sort of like the fly in the wall of people's lives where they are seeing and doing things that supposedly aren't scripted. So you do get a sense of more of how um, they're thinking or responding to, you know, different people or events in a way that a scripted television show isn't going to do. So I think that that response by Bravo is really specific to reality television in particular. But Bravo had had a long history, as we've talked about, of kind of turning a blind eye to racist um, comments made by the people that they hired to be on these shows for a really long time. And so they're just finally now starting to show that they're making an effort, although um, it, I think it does come across as being superficial. So you've coined this term educational entertainment. As it relates to Bravo, could you first define it for us and then maybe um, give some examples of how it manifests in your work and maybe on Bravo TV as well? Sure. I use the term educational entertainment to reflect the changes in the television industry, specifically during um, the Kennedy era. Uh, and what I mean by educational entertainment is that you know, when there was um, a concern that education, or I'm sorry, a concern that television was used uh, in a way that was um, negatively influencing the American public because it was so fluffy and uh, it just didn't have any sort of moral backbone to any of the content that was being presented. It, it was it was thought that it was doing a disservice to the American people, and so you have pressure from the economic, I'm sorry, from the political side to say that you know, there had to be more of a, um, a moral, uh, you know, a moral fiber to these television shows and that we had to create shows that had more meaning and were more impactful and could be, um, you know, could actually teach people about different things, especially with the growing viewer base with the increase in television sets across the United States by the early 1960s. And um, one of the things that broadcasters, found by trying to appease the FCC and create more um, educational television was that they were making the argument that the American public didn't really want to watch educational television. They were increasing the amount of documentaries they were making, and they weren't getting as wide of a viewership. Um, you know, Newton Minow, the uh, chairman of the FCC at the time, said that networks needed to, or broadcasters needed to sacrifice profits if it meant creating better you know, quality television, of 
course, this is not something that broadcasters wanted to do. And so one of the ways that they found that they could ensure their profits while at the same time appeasing the FCC was to embed educational content into entertainment television. And so this is where you'll get like a television show like Mr. Novak in the early 1960s that, um, you know, talks about uh, integrating public schools. You know, and they always have these like moral themes to each episode. Um, and so looking at entertainment television that is meant to educate the public and how that changes over time is a thread that is that runs through my research. Now, what I have found with Bravo's response the past year is that they're, they are trying to do this, I feel like, with some of the people that they are adding to the television shows. And the best example that I have is with the addition of Leva to Southern Charm. Um, if anyone has watched the most recent season of Southern Charm, um, the one of the main um, storylines through that season, and it really is because of Leva, is um, Catherine Dennis who got into an argument with a black radio personality um, in Charleston. And through this D DMing and messaging of back and forth, Catherine uses these monkey emojis. Obviously, um, this is racist. And apparently she also said um, something about accusing this uh, um, person of not having a father or something like that. I can't even remember what the exact uh, attack was that Catherine did, but it, you know, the DMs were leaked to the press. And so now Catherine is under fire for um, these racist messages. And what's interesting about this season of Southern Charm is you really get the impression that had it not been for Lova, the network was not going to address it beyond maybe an episode. Um, and it was really Lova that kept it going. Um, the other castmates, the other white castmates, I should say, did not you know, particularly find this a topic worth drawing out. They seem to feel like, you know, Catherine said this, she didn't mean it that way. And if she did, she didn't realize it was bad. And, you know, like, why be it a dead horse? So they just really didn't take it seriously. Um, but I think that Bravo, in addition to trying to um, address the situation to sort of take the heat off of the, you know, Bravo TV, at the same time, Leva is not just educating Catherine Dennis on the show, but she's also educating the viewers who are watching the show um, about why these statements were offensive, about why certain imagery like the statue of um, the Calhoun statue that sits at the center of Charleston, how that might make people of color in that area feel. She's really speaking to the audience as much as she's speaking to her castmates. Um, so I, I see that as the biggest parallel between what Bravo TV is doing to respond to the uprisings after George Floyd and uh, my own research. So, Kate, since your research originally thought about TV representations of feminism and if regular everyday women who and if regular everyday women who did not identify as feminists or participate in movements changed the way they view gender women's rights based on what they watched on TV. <laughs> I am wondering if this is also something you think about it as it relates to Real Housewives. Um, it is. I don't. I don't know if it's something that I have thought about um, before as much. So I guess I'll give a little bit of context to the question. When I originally 
started this project, uh, my dissertation, I should say, um, my original research question was, I, I wanted to know if, if women didn't participate in feminism or the women's liberation movement at all, what was it that made certain women change the way they thought about their relationships at home with their spouses, um, maybe in the workforce, uh, maybe even thinking about their position, positionality in society as a whole. So what made them think differently about their gender role if they didn't participate? And when I went to the archive, I realized that the white men who dominated the television industry really could care less <laughs> about representing women or their ideas or their relationship to women's liberation or anything like that. Um, and so, but, but they did emphasize, you know, realism and reality in that way. And so I, I sort of took off with that. Um, but the general sentiment still stands, which is, you know, how do people learn about uh, political ideas or opinions or the perceptions or experiences of other people um, if they're, you know, if they are sort of in their bubble? And what does television, how does television allow us to learn about those experiences. And so I am interested when television tries to bridge, you know, those, those two things for people. I know we talk about social media as like building community and all of this stuff, but I mean, it's become abundantly clear in the last couple of years that social media creates these silos for people who share their own personal views and um, political opinions. And, and where, where I think Bravo TV has the ability to change that is when they do, um, apart from the type of programming that once had and, and like this past season of Southern Charm as an example, right? Anybody who normally watches Southern Charm knows what to expect, but this was really quite different in the way that they talked about race um, in a way that they had not done before. And so now you've already got an audience who are watching because they normally watch Southern Charm. And so now they're um, getting a different uh a different perspective by watching the show. Now, this is not to say that everyone watching the show likes what they're watching uh, or agrees with it or uses it as this learning experience. But I, I guess I am interested in thinking about how, what is the takeaway people are getting from watching these types of shows? Is there anything else you want to say about Southern Charm to tie up these themes of liberalism, civil rights, and representations on screen? That's a good question. I think that Bravo's response actually really makes it abundantly clear what the limits of this term cultural liberalism are. And that is to say that, um, especially because you have, because you have Bravo TV, which has all of these different franchises that are very much segregated. Um, and they're in their attempts to try to, you know, integrate different types of cast members into these all-white shows. Um, you can really see the limits of cultural liberalism, especially with this um, sort of colorblind approach to remedying uh, some of the issues that they think that they have. I think that brings us back to what Jessica was thinking about earlier in terms of what are the limitations of of the approach of cultural liberalism. That is exactly oh. what I was thinking. And you just hadn't yes. finished your coffee enough to, yes. to, to get you. there, but I think we've come full circle. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I definitely would like to add to that because I don't want it to seem like cultural liberalism is this great thing that, you know, I mean, I'm very aware of the limitations of it. And a lot of the television producers, they were, they approached 
the integration of black writers and black actors with this colorblind racist, I'm sorry, a, a colorblind um, race perspective that didn't, where it prevented them from tri- from understanding um, why this attempted integration of the entertainment industry um, wasn't working out the way that they thought it would. And, and this is perfect with, this is really exemplified by the show Good Times, that there was so much tension between the black cast members and the white producers. And even though they did integrate, integrate more black writers into the show, there was tension between the black writers and the white writers. And I think that um, the failure to say that the, this tension is obviously um, illustrating the, the structural racism that is embedded within the entertainment industry I think that a lot of the white television producers viewed it as just being difficult. Um, it was, you know, you can hear in some of the um, later reflections as people talk about the show, it was a very difficult show to produce. It was a difficult show to make because there was so much tension as opposed to using those difficulties to properly self-reflect on why it was difficult. And so I think that that is what is happening with Bravo right now. And I think this is why, you know, following the 1968 uprisings after Martin Luther King's assassination, following the uprisings in 1992 in Los Angeles and then across the U.S., and then following the uprisings in 2020, television personalities, television networks, television producers, everyone is, is having this moment where they feel like they are just now starting to understand how they have been complicit in um, this tension, this failure of the American people, especially white Americans, to understand race relations, all of this stuff. But what they're not realizing is that, you know, they're thinking of themselves as being complicit and now trying to reckon with it um, is actually part of a longer history, number one. And their reckoning with it is not really, um, you know, it's not going to change anything if if you're not able to really self-reflect on why and how you've been complicit this entire time. So... Fun question. Who is your favorite Bravo Liberty and why? Candy Burris is my favorite, favorite Bravo Liberty. I think her, well, it would be a tie between her and Portia and for totally different reasons. Um, do I have to pick one? Can I have two? You can have two. Okay. Thank you for allowing me to have two. Portia. <laughs> Portia, I feel like what you've talked about on the show, like her narrative arc continuously evolves. She has not been the same person throughout the whole entire show um, with her um, marriage and divorce and relationships and the baby. And she just continuously evolves. And so she's always sort of piquing your interest. Um, and she's really funny. So she always brings that comedic element to the show as well. So I really appreciate her um, like one-on-one interviews. I always like Portia. Candy, I like, you know, she does, she's not as exciting as Portia, so it's kind of funny that I like both of these women. But, you know, like, much like Candy, I also cry every time I get really mad. So I guess I just really identify <laughs> with who she is. And I just like her. And I think that on the show, you always have to have the, um, the voice of reason. Like, you cannot have a show of just Kenya's and just Portia's. There always has to be that those other personalities to balance it out. And, and I've just always enjoyed watching Candy on the show as well. Where Candy can actually be a strong, like, A lead, or she can be, like, the really important supporting B role. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Versatile. Yes, very versatile. Max is laughing at me because I'm working out my opinions on on, on Candy. Um, 
Oh, you don't like candy? I want to know. I, I, I used to like candy. This is going to get us completely off topic. But, you know, there's implications or there's there's allegations that T.I. and Tiny um, are participating in kind of a... Uh, alleged sex, sex cult. Alleged sex cult. And so for me... This, I have not heard this. Oh, yes. This is all the news in the last month This or is so. why Jessica also goes by JMZ. JMZ. Okay. Oh. Um, so I'm working out my opinion on candy. I'm all for uh, sexual freedom. But there's this weird tension that candy plays between being horrified that it would be alleged that she had drugged someone. I understand being horrified. Um, but then she's playing the dom- dominatrix in the in the dungeon, the actual show, in the show she travels with, and then on Real Housewives. So I'm just kind of trying to figure out this line. With her ongoing relationship with Tiny and T.I. And, right, and her ongoing relationship with Tiny and T.I., so, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, tell me who you're with and I'll tell you who you are. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still processing my breakup with Tiny and T.I. That maybe Phaedra was, was um, right. a, a little right. circling something. Maybe? I think Phaedra was circling something. I really do. And I think Candy has the power to actually get Phaedra booted off the show. So mm. I have had to break up with Tiny and T.I. a little bit based on the allegations. And so I think what you are hearing in me is like, I think I might have to break up with Candy if all this proves true. If it proves true that she knew. Yeah. That's yeah. all. I mean, I'm struggling. That's what you hear me struggling with. What she would say about that dynamic between being sort of mortified by what's going on, mm-hmm. but then also like her public image. Yeah. Is she would, she, this is just me mm-hmm. saying what I think she would say is that, um, the her horrifiedness, her shock at these allegations come from the lack of consensuality. Yeah, that's exact exactly. That's ex- exactly yeah. spoken like a Sharon Block student, yeah, ladies right. and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> right, and 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 that's a key, and that's an important key line. That's you know, it's the consent issue. So as much as I like Candy, I'm just, mm, I don't want to have to break up with her. You're protecting I'm yourself I'm going to have now. to read about that. I you're, think I'm protecting myself, yes. Yeah. You're trying to, like, internally process and, and kind of grieve what might be coming. Yes. See, clearly they have worked through this with me because I was like, oh, my gosh, no. So, anyway, so Candy, Candy's a fine choice. Just because I'm going through a process doesn't mean that detracts from her being great on, on the show. Well, I would like the record to reflect that I am not aware of it's um, <laughs> uh, this alleged. Kate immediately goes into PR mode of like I had no idea yeah. of these allegations. I was yeah. not in. I was not even on the the coast that Candy was on right. when these yeah. occurred. <laughs> yeah. Today, I thought we would do a segment that I'm calling Coffee Clatch, where you can recommend further reading, um, further reading as like a compendium to your episode. So uh, this would be where you could suggest a few, you know, secondary sources or TV shows or something for people to look into if they want to have a deeper dive into this topic um 
for example, as you were speaking at the very beginning um, about Emmett Till and his funeral, I thought of Ruth Feldenstein's chapter in the Not June Cleaver anthology by Joanne Meyerowitz that came out in the 1990s um, called, um, uh, so the whole, uh, it's called um, The Whole World Can See, and it's about um, Emmett Till's um, funeral and the televising of the funeral. So um, as an example of like where what I'm thinking about in terms of suggestions. Suggested readings to go along with this fine episode. Yeah, to like give people more space to explore. And Kate, okay. you can actually reference yourself as well. Totally. Um, well, as soon as I publish something, I will let you know. <laughs> you don't have to put that in the podcast. Um, I, I, I do, <laughs> which I hope to soon. Um, but anyways, yes, I have some, hmm, I do have some recommendations. Um, I had already mentioned earlier Daniel Weiner's book, uh, Black Arts West, which is a really good book to, um, uh, Danny's book talks, um, a lot about the grassroots black cultural movements, um, in the 1960s. I think he might go up through the nineties if I remember correctly. Um, but nonetheless, I would recommend his book, uh, also Alison Perlman's book, um, and a- actually anything by Alison Perlman, because she writes a lot about TV and politics together. So she's a really good source to look at television policy in particular. Um, and also, uh, Elena Levine, she, um, is a television historian who writes a lot about 19. 19- 70s television in particular. She has a book called Wallowing in Sex, which is about um, uh, representations of sex and sexuality in television. And she has a new book that just came out in 2020 um, called Her Stories. And it's all about the um, soap operas and the soap industry, which I have not had a chance to read yet, but it is sitting on my desk. It is next. So um, I guess I would say those three recommendations uh, Allison's uh, book is uh, titled Public Interest. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I didn't say that. Yes. Public Interest. Yeah. And she's also at Irvine. She is. She's my advisor. Yes. Oh, great. So yeah. you know her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> read that book a few times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Kate, can you tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work and how can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Yeah, I am. Well, I'm actually in the process of finishing two uh, academic articles on um, one is related to television representations of feminism and using TV um, to arouse women's consciousness on gender issues. And the second um, article is actually very related to what I talked about in um, the podcast today, which is specifically thinking about, um, you know, cultural liberal responses to uh, the 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King. And so I specifically talk about the show Julia and that article and um, how white viewers viewed the show as a method of forced integration into their home. Um, in addition to that, I'm revising my dissertation and um, hope to have that in book form uh, one day. But in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter um, I don't remember what my handle is. I think it might be KL Flock, but if you just look me up, you can find me. Uh, and then also you can 
I have a website that has my email address that you can contact me there. It's just kateflock.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. I hope you had fun. (laughs) I did. I had a lot of fun. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. You can also find us at our Etsy shop, Historians Housewives. This episode was powered by Acast. Thank you, Kate Flock. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, Louis Asio de Dios, and the Anchipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.